Hello everyone and welcome back to James Cameron's Titanic Scene by Scene. I'm Brittany Butler. I'm Ethan Brim. And today we have a very wonderful episode for you all. An episode unlike anyone we've ever done before. We are sitting down with the lovely Alexandra Boyd who portrayed a first class woman in James Cameron's Titanic (laughs) in this movie absolutely amazing so we're going to be doing a really cool behind the scenes by scene special today which should be really fun yeah so i mean let's just we can get right into it alexandra thank you so much for being here well thank you so much for having me it's always a pleasure to talk about my experience on that film because it was quite an extraordinary experience and one that i will have to say i have not repeated and do not expect to repeat in my rather long career now it's it's definitely spikes as one of the as one of the more amazing uh jobs that i've done yeah oh absolutely (laughs) and i don't think anyone doubts that where should we start i think we should just start from the beginning give us a little rundown well i was uh, you can hear from my accent that i'm english and I grew up there and always wanted to be a performer and actress for as long as I could remember. And I got an opportunity to go to a full-time theatre school when I was 16. So I left regular school and went to full-time training, mostly dance and musical theatre. And I liked that, but I wasn't really a dancer. It wasn't going to be what I was going to do for the next maybe 10 years because dancers have very short lives. Um, I mean, they keep living, they just don't keep it. <laughs> and my hips just couldn't take all that, you know. And so I went to drama school and I loved it. And I was just a one year postgraduate in London. I started a theatre company with a group of students, graduate students, and we did the Edinburgh Festival and tours of Italy and all that stuff. And in the meantime, I had fallen in love with an American, and uh, as it happened, and his job brought us back to the states. And the marriage didn't survive, but I decided to stay. And I was, I was sort of stuck in Florida. No, no offense to Floridians, but it wasn't where I was. It wasn't where I was going to go and look for work as an actress, especially in the Panhandle where where I was. So I moved to Seattle, and I lived there a couple of years. And then I had an opportunity to be in a film with Richard Dreyfuss called Mr. Holland's Opus and that was the first film I had ever done and I was like this is fun I thought theatre was good but movies were so good and so I packed up a U-Haul and my cat and I drove down the I-5 to Los Angeles to sort of be there when the movie opened to say look I'm in this film I'm legitimate I'm I give me some more work because it's super fun and of course I was waiting tables and catering and that sort of thing Um, and a friend of mine was working in a manager's office and he called he said they're looking for English people to go to, to audition for roles in this film that James Cameron's making about the Titanic he said do you want me to I could lose my job because his office didn't represent me I didn't have an agent I didn't it was just Matt who saw the breakdown and he he put sent in my headshot and resume which um and and I kind of followed up you know I made sure I called with my best English accent you know please will you see me please will you see me 
And um, and Mally Finn, who was the casting director, brought me in. She sat me down. She said, "Right," and I was ready to I was ready to perform, you know, or to to read something. But the the parts that I um, auditioned for, and subsequently a lot of other smaller roles, w- didn't have any lines. So it was this was in particular for the Countess of Ross. So mm. she said, "Go home and research." feminists from the turn of the 20th century and um and bring another actor with you maybe if you want to improvise or write a monologue and i was like what i hadn't written anything since school and i i asked my friend who was a writer to help me and i researched everything from a friend of mine who was something of a titanic historian he had he had an entire shelf of videos of, you know night to remember and books and robert ballard's stuff and you know and a, and a piece of coal that had been exhumed from the wreck and i mean he was he was like an original titaniac um, his name is Nelson Aspen. He's he's a he's a very accomplished um, celebrity reporter now. But he had this obsession with with Titanic. So he gave me everything for the weekend. I, I immersed myself like amazing. What an amazing story! I, I'd known about the disaster, but I I didn't know as much as I found out. I found out enough about the Countess of Roths and wrote a monologue in the first person as if I were she. And I went in and I said my monologue. I went home and I didn't hear anything. Then I was at a party and there was another actress there. She said, oh yes, my friend got that part that you were up for, my friend Rochelle Rose. I was like, bummer. (laughs) I mean, there aren't many jobs that you hold on to for any length of time, but this had been just so interesting. I knew that it would just have been the most amazing thing to be part of. I wasn't going to be part of it. But then three more weeks goes by, I get a call. Actually, I'm catering and I've got my pager on, which definitely shows you it's 1996. And, <laughs> and it was my it was my boyfriend at the time going, they just called. You're going on Titanic. You've got a part. They've given, they've given you another part. And it turned out that um, James Cameron saw that tape I did and said, yeah, Cancer Ross, sorted but give Alexandra another role there's a role there's a role of a first class passenger let's you know let's do that so I went down had like a day's worth of costume uh, fitting and then I went down to work and everyone looked at me like oh what are you here for I said oh just some of the first class dining room scenes I think and maybe a tea party scene I think and all that it was very vague it was all very vague you just had to sort of show up and everyone was like don't make any plans we've been here two weeks haven't even seen the set you know it was just going to be this enormous production that was just going to keep rolling and we were going to fit into it when when we needed to be there right and so four days work turned into like two months yeah, I was going to say, how long were you actually on the set for? I went home once, um, but really I was there for two months. Wow. Yeah. So speaking of how long you were on the set for, what was a typical day like on the set of a movie like Titanic? <laughs> what was this like? 4 a.m. call. So you show up in the dark and you get scooped into hair and makeup which took forever because I don't anymore but I used to have very naturally curly hair and they'd put your hair up and then they'd do your makeup 
and then you had to get into your corset which needed mm. e- we each needed a wardrobe person to cinch us into the corset and then do up your shoes you're supposed to do your shoes first i think but if you had a if you had a maid servant if you had trudy bolt she would do your shoes up for you it was you did really feel like you were queen for the day every day being dressed in such a manner and i remember the first time we did the first class dining room scenes they had been doing two weeks of tank and frozen people so hair and makeup were just they were they were exhausted because they'd been in waders you know going into the tank and doing people's frozen dead makeup and then all of a sudden it was first class and they were like oh my god don't you look lovely oh look at the so we were all just we, we all couldn't believe how amazing we looked it was you know and then you walked onto the set and it was like being there oh absolutely yeah in lots of movie sets you only see like 45 degrees or maybe 180 degrees of the set this was 360 degrees you could not see where the edges went and i remember one day in particular um it's when it's when they're walking through from the doorway where I do the little you know eyebrow lift to Leo or Jack and they come they come past me and then they walk through to the table to sit down and it was this long involved thing where again you know everybody all the extras had to be set I was then sat down at the table by the captain because I was like his date then and then <clears throat> once they moved past us but there was this beautiful moment when everybody every single inch of the set was 1912 titanic except for the steadicam guy and the steadicam cable wrangler like two guys in cargo shorts and t-shirts walking <laughs> through the titanic like, what are they what are they doing <laughs> they, they're, they're completely out of place and i just had that moment of i feel like i'm here but uh, I, no, I realise I'm not. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in 1996. How far did your character extend? What was their lifespan in the over the chronological span of the movie, if that makes sense? Uh, someone had asked, actually, oh, okay. um, if you were given any actual character information, because we had heard that James Cameron gave a lot of the background actors detailed information, and then whether or not you got onto a lifeboat or if you filmed anything like that. Yeah. Well, um, it's interesting. I I was cast as a first-class passenger, as first-class woman, because he wanted to... There were core extras, and I know a couple of those ladies. They were there for seven months. They were on the poop deck. They were in the water. They they did... They were in the third-class dining uh, dance scenes. They did everything, you know, whenever... And because they became relied upon by the stunt uh, crew and by James Cameron, they really embedded themselves into the film without actually playing specific roles mm. so so my role and many of the stewards that that have you know voice uh, lines that you know they pop up every now and again james cameron wanted to create a world where you kept seeing you know we might not have a a, a designated name but you you kept seeing the same people in this small city that was on its way to new york um, and of course, in the end, there just wasn't room for all of us. And that's why all my lines were cut, which is hilarious, I think. Since <laughs> we, we all, everyone, even James Cameron and me, went to so much trouble to get me there. And then it just 
it just happens that you know you just don't end up much in the film much of what you do and now I'm a director myself and you know you just want to shoot everything they say shoot the cat just shoot that thing just just get it all get it all because you know you you may use it and how lovely if you do but most of the time you don't you shoot far more than you use so so our characters were we were principal cast well we were what's the word we were not core extra we were not extras we we're not background but we did we were all given well i think i would say we took it upon ourselves to have as much knowledge as possible i certainly did and because i'd read so much specifically about the countess of ross i knew and understood the life of a privileged first class passenger on that boat so mm. it was a, it was it didn't matter that i wasn't playing that part and in fact it's lovely that i didn't play that part because if i had i wouldn't have met rochelle who's one of my dearest friends in the world for the last 25 years so it's that sort of it, it none of us none of us at that level minded sitting around not doing things for days on end because it was just it was such an extraordinary thing to be part of i am curious um because obviously like a movie like this has a lot of background characters uh you know bit players and whatnot but at the same time there's still millions of us who have never been on a, on a movie set uh, let alone in front of the of a camera what is the culture like, I guess, in the sense of like, who do you interact with when you're in a role like like you're in on, on a movie like this that's this big? Do you know what? That's a really great question. There's there's a it's like a military operation. So if you think of the director, James Cameron is the general and he's shouting out orders. And then he has a he has like a second in command, which is the first AD. And that was Josh McLaughlin. So he would give he would give all of the directions to everyone, especially if there were a lot of people in the scene. He was there. And then there was a, um, a Mexican first AD, because, as you know, we were in Rosarito Beach, Mexico. So mm-hmm. he would say what? James Cameron wanted us all to do and then the Mexican guy would say it all again in Spanish because there are a lot of Spanish crew and and um, extras and you know and then we would like, like walking down the grand staircase for instance and everybody had to land and she's going and that's John Jacob Astor and that's the Countess of Roths and at one point I got right in front of John Jacob Astor without realizing because I had I'd been set early in the day and I was just doing my thing and I came around this side of the banister and all of a sudden everyone James Cameron screaming and I'm like and, and we're all like what, what on earth is going on there's even a little moment you can see Kate and Leo in some of the behind the scenes they're like god what's going on it's me it's me because I didn't realize as she because I can't hear what she's saying I because she's saying it very quietly to Leo she goes and that's John Jacob Astor but as she said it I was walking right past him and blocking him Josh comes over, Alexandra, yeah, I'm really sorry. Can you walk the other side of the banister and come out? This It's like, yeah, of course. I'm an actress. I do as I'm told. What I've been doing is what I was told at 9 a.m. this morning. You know, so, so there's a lot can get lost in translation when there's so many people trying to organize so many people. And then the person that actually brings you from the hair and makeup building to the set is the third ad who is he's just in charge of actors and he has a call sheet in fact what happened on my first day which was that 
that's very seen walking down the grand staircase and and just sort of milling around and getting to our tables i'm having my hair done and it's got very quiet but i'm having a nice conversation with my hair uh, designer so i'm not i'm not bothered and then all of a sudden i hear a wahin the third ad alexandra alexandra i forget you i forget you you have to come to the set now i was like oh okay so he takes me to the set and as you know because you've heard so much about this amazing building there was a three-story interior of the ship inside a tank and so i had to go down all the scaffolding i'll never forget it was like it, it was like like the back stairs of a hotel or an apartment building on these metal stairs and then at one end uh, we entered the the dining room and at the other end was Francis Fisher and Billy Zane and Kate and Leo and Jim and and all these people and I was sort of escorted up to the group because Joaquin had forgotten me so everyone was like who the heck is this person coming and uh, James Cameron said to me Alexandra thank you so much for coming and I'm like why is he saying thank you to me I'm like I'm, the, I'm having the time of my life and he says have what do you think of my set and I said and I'm like and I had literally just stepped onto it and I said it's I mean he said look at this look at this and he gets his book you know the Robert Ballard book the um uh, it's not Robert yep. Ballard it, it's a illustrated history Yes, Ken Marshall's all the all mm-hmm. the drawings, and and all the I- images and so forth. And he's flicking through. It's like dog-eared, and there's no cover on it because it's all been torn off. He said, "This has been down to the wreck with me nine times." And I'm like, "I'm so impressed." I'm like, mm, "Just keep it, keep it together, keep it together." He goes, "Look," and he finds a photograph of the first-class dining room, that lobby area, and he goes, "We are standing right there," and I look up and I look around and I'm. I'm standing in that photograph. The reproduction of that space was so was so brilliant and so spot on. I mean, even the carpet, the carpet was woven, you know, with the same patterns because the they with Wilton, who is the carpet manufacturer in the UK, they, they still had it. They had all right? the cards, yes, it, yeah, all of the cards, and they just went, "Oh, you want this one from 1912? We'll just put that one in the machine, then, and we'll just roll off a couple of rolls of that for you." <laughs> If that was America, they would have not saved any of that stuff. Well, no. <laughs> no, no one here yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, but it, well, because also it takes the research out of it as well, because somebody yeah. just has to go into one of those probably big leather-bound books with all that handwritten ink pen notation and go, yeah, here it is. Here it is, Harry. Put that in it. You know, and it's, you've got the Titanic carpets. So and, you know, just to, to talk about that, because I love production design and I love um, the way you can tell stories um, with with the picture and with the props and with the costumes. I mean, it's just, it's endless. And um, when I sat at the captain's table, I sat next to Bernard Hill, and he and I had worked together when I was 21 in a in a BBC period drama about a teacher, a couple of teachers married. And I played one of the children in the class. <laughs> I was 21, but I obviously, I you know, with the light behind me when I was running, I looked young enough, sat next to other 12-year-olds. Anyway, it's another <laughs> whole story. But so I sat next to Bernard and, um, and then the other side of him was Peter Lamont, who was the production designer. And... Um, and he's all like, he's going like that because his colour's all tight and everything. I said, oh, Peter, you're English. Me too, me too. And he's like, no, I'm not an actor. He goes, I'm the blimmin' 
production designer and Jim always puts me he always puts me in in the scene and I'm the I think I'm the ship's doctor or something today and I just of course I was like the carpet and the and the knives and forks the cutlery all stamped with the white star line logo and Mm -hmm. you know and then we couldn't talk anymore because they were doing the take but you know it was just it's just so lovely and then and then cut to the Oscar uh broadcast and he was nominated and of course won uh, for art direction production design and they use my shot of that you know because I'm standing there in the left of frame and behind me is the entire dining room and we were all watching it and my phone started ringing off the hook I just saw you won the Oscars I went that was more exciting to see me on the Oscars than see me than spot me try and look for me what was left of me in the film Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So I'm trying to think of what to do because I had everything blocked out to go scene by scene, but we've already <laughs> talked about certain yes, no, bits we can of talk about here We can there. talk about some of the other scenes that we haven't done the, what I call the getting on the ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, that's the first scene um, that you're in. So if we were, if we were going to go by scene by scene, the first scene would be sailing day and the boarding scene at Southampton. That is when we first see you. What was it like on set that day? Because it's very well documented that this day was a little bit crazy because they had built the incorrect side of the ship where it was docked. Uh, it wasn't accurate to history. So they had to flip the whole scene in post. So like all the writing was backwards and everyone's costumes had to be flipped. Yes, and Rochelle had a beauty mark on one side of her face. It had to be whited out and painted in the other side. And Kate's double-breasted suit was built the opposite way to the girl's way. And then when she was inside, she had another one that was actually built the right way. It was amazing. Even our boarding passes were printed in reverse. And yes, and they had uh, sweaters with white star line and the sailors had their hats all, all. And all there's, there's that lovely moment when there's, um, there's a dray horse um, with beer barrels and so forth. All of the signage, all the wrong way around. So all of us who stole our on-set photographs, because we were strictly not allowed to take any photographs. And this was, nobody had a phone. It was all, you know... Disposable camera. Yes, or, dispo- and I yeah. had a disposable camera in my muff. Everyone laughs at that. And I would sneak it out and I could sort of, you know, just sort of... And then my um, my makeup lady, she'd be like, why don't I... Um, why don't I just take a picture of you for continuity? That's it, yes. So she would make it look like she's taking a picture of me, but she was just taking a picture of me. That's great. <laughs> how, about any, how about any like props and stuff? Did you? I don't know if you're at liberty to speak on if you took any Did props. I steal any? No. Yeah. I wanted desperately, going back to um, uh, First Class Dining Room, I desperately wanted the little star-shaped menu holder. Mm. And um, they were just so... They were just so super special to me. I'd never seen anything. And I I thought a fork. I could maybe get a fork in my long glove, but I didn't. I didn't. I did hear that some things did go walkies as far as the extras were concerned, but I can't speak to that. What was left, and there was a lot of it, um, sank J. Peterman catalogue, didn't it? So, which is a shame because I loved that catalogue and they, they took everything. Because remember, they did, they needed to get their money back. They had spent so they had spent two hundred million dollars and they didn't know 
it was going to be a smash hit they were like oh i know what we'll do we'll sell the anchor and we'll sell you know the knives and forks and the costumes and things to think they could have kept all of it because they, they did not need to pawn off stuff from the movie. Just to they sold it to TV for like twenty million dollars. Go, yes, yes, we'll we'll take twenty million for for in perpetuity. You can have it. I I that I don't know whose decision that was, but those are the sort of things that that rippled down to you know we minions who were just um, none of that was any of our worry. Yeah. So the boarding scene um in the film we see you enter the titanic right before rose and her family i believe and you're walking on with a dog um so what was that like you had to act with a dog (laughs) rochelle and i both had a dog she had the afghan hound and i had the um airedale terrier like a standard airedale terrier and um this is the, the magic of the movies and the way you could just make it do what you want. So we, the, that gangplank was not wide. It was over a piece of water. I mean, it, in my mind, it was like 18 inches wide. It probably wasn't. It was probably more like two and a half, three feet. But it was very unsophisticated. Let's put it that way. And I had a dog and I was behind Rochelle or she was behind me. I cannot remember now. You were first. You were I first. was first. Thank you. Thank you. So um, we're, but I'm right behind Trudy, she's got the hat boxes and Josh is going, look up at the ship like you've never seen anything before, like it before. And I'm like, what is he talking about? I've never seen anything like this before. It's a 90% replica of the bloody Titanic. How did they do it? So, you know, there was no acting required. We were just responding in exactly the appropriate way. But we had to handle these dogs. So you trot up the gangplank. Every, you know, Francis, Kate, Billy, whatever. They would get inside. We would almost get inside. And then we'd have to turn around with the dogs, come back down again to reset. I don't know how many times we did that. And then the bit you're talking about when we're coming in through the, the little door, they were like, okay, just keep going. This time she was like, just keep going, keep going. If you watch that again, I didn't know that James Cameron was going to be inside the door with a camera. I thought they were still filming us from outside. They weren't. Jim was watching us come in. This was a turnaround. And so I looked down at the door because actually there's nowhere for me to go. And every time I see it, I look like I'm like, oh, oh, hang on, hang on, where's the dog? But I, I should have been just entering. So I know that I'm completely and utterly confused. I'm like, oh, there's Jim. What's he doing there? All of that's going through my head as I'm trying not to trip over the dog. I was going to say, I know, I did notice that. Like, and, and you can see also that the dog kind of just stops in his tracks. <laughs> we should have just waltzed past, and that, I'm sure we only, and it just makes me smile that that made, that, of all my other stunning acting moments, of which there were only a few, didn't make it, but that did. <laughs> so silly. Is, um, I have a question about James Cameron real quick, about, uh, his directorial style. I know some directors are more hands-on than others. Is he the former, the latter, or what What kind of, as far as like dealing with actors, I should say? Yes, what's very interesting about him is that he can do almost every other job on set except acting. Yep. He can uh, operate, he knows lighting, he can draw. I mean, he's even, you know, part of his, his illustrations and so forth. 
so he's very clear and now that i'm a director too i understand how much prep you put into the scene you've been thinking about it maybe for years prior to so you're all totally prepped and you've you've shared that with your production team and your crew and you know hopefully it's all going to keep going smoothly so when you when you hire an actor especially a really experienced one or one that's just really very good you tend to rely on them a lot to do to do the work so he will say like for instance when i'm the the kathy bates kate and leo coming through the doorway and i catch sight of him jim said to me oh you alexandra i haven't established you yet so this was part of his plan to keep all these same faces popping up around the ship all the time he says when when Jack comes through that doorway, just look at him like, hmm, haven't seen anything like that in first class before, right? So that's where the eyebrow came in. And we did a couple of, I'm chatting to a, a, a lady who's sitting down and I see, I'm like, like that little double take, like, hello, hello, <laughs> right? A bit of fresh meat, rough trade. Well, you know, what he washed up well. And um, so we did that. And then he, he did it a couple of times and then he was like, great just what I wanted, boom, and he's off. And you're like, you're like the, the middle, the center of everything for 15 minutes, and then he's on to the next thing. And you feel like, <laughs> oh, well, was I, okay, I guess it was, that's the, that's the, I've spoken to other actors, the other actors in the, in the movie too, because it is so intense to be under the, and in the crosshairs of James Cameron and Russell Carpenter, the DP, and everybody's just like, it's your moment, it's your moment, it's a tiny moment. I was going to say, we, we've answered another question, too. People were asking where that eyebrow raise came from. Yes, you got the eyebrow. You got the eyebrow uh, moment. And um, it's interesting because a friend of mine said, that's the lady that winks at him. I was like, no, I don't wink. I raise my eyebrow. But it's really amazing how people who know the film as well as you do, far better than I do, I have to admit, is is that those tiny moments like here she comes here she comes oh there goes a oh it's not a wink it's an eyebrow okay but anyway in his mind it's a wink you know because that's the intention so clearly you know it was it was just right and um you know just that idea as as i that idea that you are the sharp pointy end of everybody's job for about 15 minutes and then he's on to the next thing and you're like Oh, you feel a little a little bit let down, but at the same time, you know you got a pat on the on the back from from the director. Yeah, because this is the highlight of of your day. It's like the moment you've been waiting for, right? A, a little bit. Um, even yeah. though even though a lot of times we were um, we were dressed up, four a.m. call, hair, makeup, you know, corset, frock, in the van to the set, or hair, makeup, corset, frock never see the set 4 p.m you could all go home now <laughs> so we would go back to the to the uh, rosarita resort and drink margaritas so you know it was there were many times when we were all sort of chivied up and gussied up and dogs dinnered up and um never really were used but that was the luxury of having that kind of budget where he could do that you know small tiny films like my films you have to eke out every moment of every actor's time and 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 make sure you get your day but he was he had the luxury of being able to just do overtime and pay overtime and and get exactly what he wanted when you mentioned how fans of the movie would recognize you know be so aware of small moments like that totally like when i 
found out, you know, we were going to be talking and stuff, I was like, oh, of course I know exactly who she is. I'm like, she's the one that raises her eyebrow at Leo as he walks in. And, and that was super cool. There are no small parts, you see. That's what it is. Uh, but, that, but that is really interesting to me, though. You know, the way you've said that James Cameron sort of really went the extra mile to like get you involved in the movie yes and then he gave you that moment which is in my opinion a a really um it is a kind of standout moment honestly because they do kind of switch to slow motion there for a minute and this is the moment where Jack is sort of crossing the threshold into a new world yes and you're the first person there as he walks through the door and he doesn't go unnoticed yeah yeah exactly i mean it's it filmmaking is a craft and when you're a master craftsman like james cameron i mean my favorite film one of my favorite films is um the abyss i can watch that and you they said this film really broke barriers with cgi but you think of that moment when the water comes out and and mimics her face and she sticks her tongue out and it sticks and then other story moments like when um, uh, Ed Harris he takes off his wedding ring and he chucks it in that blue water in the toilet and then he changes his mind and he and for the rest of the movie he's got a blue hand <laughs> those little bits of attention to detail always yeah. I miss entire plot points in movies because I'm like oh my god that just layered in the character or oh that's a really nice lamp in the background on that table and I'll go what's happening now and my <laughs> Drew will go he just said what he was going to do before he left the room I was like oh I was looking at the lamp <laughs> you're telling so many stories you can tell so much uh, so, there's so many multi-facets and, you, and just going back to the movie and what James Cameron had in that film you know 1912 all of the costumes all of the sets all of the story all of the real people who were on board who lost their lives and then encompassing the whole thing is this terrible tragedy so it starts off at the very top and goes all the way down to to the very bottom of human experience Mm -hmm. and um and what an achievement And, and that's why you know you can't look away when it's on tv wherever it is wherever it is in in the in the moment is is you 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 want to watch it you you sit down and you watch it i guess just to say this quickly because you had mentioned it in passing how in the first class dinner scene you're with the captain and you were kind of like the captain's date and we see him pull out your chair for you to sit down briefly again i feel like that's another testament to james cameron wanting you in there he puts you with the captain yes (laughs) that's pretty awesome well and you know and i understand it too when you you don't want to just be random and most movies they are you'll have a, a core extras you know lots of people who will just be in scenes and and i mean it's hard to even compare any other movies with this because that you know it was so extraordinary and they had the money to keep everybody around but there mm. mally finn the casting director said look we are looking for people who look like they could have traveled on the Titanic in 1912. And certainly 25 years ago, when I was in my 30s, I had a very Edwardian, I had a very retro uh, period look about me that wasn't typical of a lot of the actors working in Los Angeles. You know, there's a there's a different look and 
tone to us Brits. And, and ironically, when I went back to England, everyone thought I was very glamorous and very LA. So some of it must have rubbed off on me in 10 years. But that's another story. But that idea of the luxury of being able to have a professional actor who didn't mind not having very many lines. I loved not having very many. I loved having no lines. Stress-free. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just look gorgeous. Suffer a little in the corset because that was that was a trial. But basically be paid to to do this thing, to to have an experience where you could really imagine yourself in in that place without ha- without having to stretch your imagination very far. Um, yeah. And there were other first class passengers that, you know, we would we were doing similar things, but I. I got my couple of little moments, and and at first, when some and somebody else had seen an early screening of the film and called me up to say, "You're not in it. You're not in it. All your lines, whatever you did, is not there." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Thanks. Thanks for the info. It's very kind of you." <laughs> so people are weird. Actors are weird. I just actors are weird. I'm glad I'm not one anymore. So <laughs> then it was Rochelle who'd been at the same screening who called me and said. Yes, you are in it because she, we, she and I had had so much. Well, you're there with the dogs. <laughs> you're there in the dining room, and you know, and 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 so that was enough for me. It, you know, in fact, um, I have. If you go to my website and one to my ancient acting showreel, there's a there's a moment where I have. I have cut together every frame that I'm in and I've done a voiceover. I pretend I'm uh, Kate Winslet going on, that's John Jacob Astor and that's the Kansas of Roths and that's Alexandra Boyd, just as she's <laughs> going upstage, right? And there I am in the frame. And then and then I go, oh, wait, you missed it, didn't you? And so I rewind it. I will tell you, that little sequence has got me so many meetings and auditions i will say how did you find me for this job like a big tv job i did in the uk on coronation street and i was in for my screen test and this was a big deal because it was going to be a really great job and i said how did you the casting director's assistant how did you find me and she goes well i saw that sequence from titanic and i thought i've got to meet this woman so i brought you in and I got the job. Amazing. So I'm going to thank him for cutting all my lines because if I'd had proper little scenes, I'd have made a regular little reel and it'd been, she's there, there, there and there. But I, I made lemonade out of my lemons and I just made fun of myself. Like I was there for two months and boom. Oh, you missed. Did you miss it? Let's go through and I'll show you where. Look at the top left corner. Look over there. <laughs> ah, it's over. It's done. It's a conversation starter. Oh, yeah. Titanic is always a conversation starter, but before you've met somebody, it's and certainly now again now I'm on the other side of things. I realise how important it is. Listen, you young actors out there, um, it's not it's easier said than done, but it's important to distinguish yourself in an idiosyncratic way. And we used to do it by putting swear words in our monologues. You know, thinking, oh look, I can say and blindness and that when I still see young actors doing that no that's not what it is it's something that's usually intangible or just a piece of luck like having all your lines cut in the biggest movie of all time (laughs) you know oh what shame yeah but is it I'm still talking about it 25 years later yeah 
that, I, that's a big question everyone had as well. Being in a movie of that magnitude, of that level of influence and staying power and pop cultural reference, what is that like for you? You know what I mean? To, to have that as part of your life and part of your career and just experience, um, life experience, really. I will say that now I'm a director, I will say that I can refer to it as part of my film school because I didn't go to film school. I had a front row seat watching James Cameron put his film together, not just any old film, that film. And even Mm -hmm. though I will probably never need or be invited to direct a movie of that magnitude it doesn't matter the language is the same and the level of respect and the just just watching it all play out when your responsibility is so much smaller than than most other people most other actors um so so there's that element of you know i really i really had the most amazing education on that film that i didn't know i was going to use 20 you know 15 years later it took another 15 years before I started directing so there's that and then there's just as you said the pop culture level of it and uh, uh, my uh, my friend Linda Kearns who is uh, the Irish lady and she's like Jesus Mary and Joseph and she's the dead eye lady you know when they pick her out of the he's leaning out of the lifeboat and she's got those dead eyeballs she says isn't it like don't you sometimes feel like a bit of a fraud we say oh no i am in it no no i really am i you know and your friends know where to look for you or they've known over the years but when i say oh yes and i i did this thing and i and i had that quite big job and 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 then, and then oh, i was in james cameron's titanic oh were you really what are you you know and you're, well it sometimes feels a little redundant but then you remember it's not because people are excited to have these conversations with you and nobody on any of my other jobs has ever really been as interested of course as they are in hearing about titanic because it's titanic i mean not many people can say that i mean there were a lot of people on the set in the crew absolutely i mean the end credits of that movie are like 10 minutes long um but and i'm not in the credits i'm not in the credits either oh really no so there you go so there's even more people (laughs) so yes there's even more of us and because because my lines and this is like it's it's a clerical error as much as anything else because i had to i then had to call up screen actors guild and say you know i am if you're seen or heard in a movie you you're entitled to residuals from the revenue of that movie and again so not even credited all my lines cut was totally there i'm totally the lady with the eyebrow but you it was a huge huge operation of course you're gonna slip through the cracks you know did you uh name your character at all like just to yourself do you know what that's a really interesting question ethan because i did once once the countess of ross had been was not going to be my my place in the film i found another lady oh gosh i'm gonna have to look it up now because i did find in all my research there are many books with people's first person accounts you know and memories and so forth and i found another first class lady and she had a little sort of click of of her friends a little soiree of friends that she would hang out with so i decided that was her i can't remember a damn name now but it was 25 years ago so yes i did i did for myself but again i didn't it was that was it was just more of the fun of it yeah Yeah. 
of course. Like I said, the minute you walked in there. And James Cameron would always come up to you and, and kiss the back of your glove because he just felt like... he. All the men felt like gentlemen and all of us felt like these elegant ladies. You couldn't not when you were dressed, all dressed like that. We were look, you know, we were looked like we were all dressed to go to a very, very expensive wedding, <laughs> or a very expensive costume party. <laughs> yes, a very and and imagine dressing like that every night for dinner. You couldn't just go in in your flip flops and jeans. No yes. shirt, no shoes, no service was not was not invented for this time. <laughs> <laughs> there is a deleted scene. That you are in. Yes. Which I'm just calling After the Collision. Oh, okay. Um, That's what I'm calling it. That's what I've named it. Um, (laughs) Because it is not included on, like, the official deleted scenes, but it is on James Cameron's Titanic Explorer CD-ROM. We had to go Um, look for it, didn't we? We, Because I knew it was there. Well, I didn't know it was there. And then because I know all you amazing fans, thank you, Instagram, it it pops up all the time. Like that deleted scene where where you said, well, do you want to set it up a bit more? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's interesting, very interesting now since you've said that you were originally auditioning for the Countess of Roths, because in this deleted scene, you say a line that later went to the Countess in the theatrical cut of the movie. Mm. So that's actually kind of interesting. Um, But yeah, basically, you are in this scene where you kind of have that moment after they hit the iceberg, you speak to a steward and you say, you know, oh, excuse me, like, what's the matter? I thought I felt a shudder. And then da 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 da. And that was that was your moment you had there. Well, let me let me roll back to what happened was they um, said, okay, Alexandra, you can go home for a bit because I don't think we're going to use you. And this happened to a lot of people all the time. Go home. Don't go home. Stop. Unpack. Come back. Get through the works. Get to set. Jim's going to put you in a scene. So that happened that day. And they um, they they stand me in front of my doorway. And I had done my research. And I knew that when people, what people felt was, but what they thought, and also they put the engines in reverse. So that little hum that you hear on a steamship changed from the hum to sort of nothing. They It went backwards because they were literally backpedaling off the iceberg. But the shudder was that, that thing going along the edge of the iceberg, I imagine. So, um, Jim, 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 we all call him Jim because, you know, he's Jim, right? So he's like, so the iceberg has just struck. I said, yes, and everybody felt a shudder in the, in the boat. He went, you really have done your research, haven't you? I was like, well, of course I have because it was so much fun to know about. I said, yeah, he said, great. Okay, so. The steward will come along. Uh, you'll let you've come out of your room because actually you might like a cup of tea or something because you know whatever you British drink during a crisis. I said, oh yeah, just that. I wonder where we get that notion from that English people just drink tea when it's when there's a crisis. Hilarious. So so he's already he's already placed the idea that that this first class lady needs a cup of tea. Asked the steward and also what's going on. I thought I felt a shudder. And he's he's answering lots of people who've come out of their doors like they will because everyone is sort of de- they've gone to bed for the night or whatever. Um, and then and then Bruce Ismay comes right past us. And now the bit that's in the theatrical is it's basically on him the whole way. And then the heart of the ocean is in 
uh, Jack's pocket and that mm. all you know they've they've placed that and that's all that but I have a story about that dress that I'm wearing that dress came up for auction and um one of the collectors him like look your dress your dress from titanic i'm like what dress because now uh, the scene's deleted so i've even forgotten about it but now i remember because i remember this burgundy dress and it was quite beautiful it was very it was very loose and sort of ethereal and very much going into sort of the art nouveau you can see my hair looks a bit of a mess it's sort of like off the, and i've got that gorgeous grecian ribbon all through it it's just it's, it's really i mean gorgeous so um this dress is up for auction it's got my name in it and it's got titanic and the date and it's got a tear i said i didn't do the tear i promise i didn't do the tear and of course we talk about how these costumes just hang on they, they, they just hang in warehouses for 20 30 years you know not being reused or re-rented or whatever and that dress sold in the auction for five thousand dollars awesome so this was a dress worn by an actress in a scene which was cut (laughs) an actress whose all her lines were cut so if you don't know me you're like oh that extra it was worn it went for five thousand dollars and that's when i started to go okay that what's going on here there's something going on with this film i mean i always knew there was but um that was quite recently that was in the last couple of years and those collectors say that actually the prices are getting ridiculous now you think they go you think the interest would wane no it's becoming more i mean i think there's a there's a boiler suit from one of the stokers on ebay and they're asking twenty thousand dollars for it not surprised my goodness there's a mythology to also to the movie that not a lot of uh, I mean it's a contemporary movie you know it's 1997 it's not super old that a lot of contemporary movies don't have you know you can only probably list a handful of them but there's definitely a mythology of to Titanic specifically can you put your finger on it what it is um you know I'm it's probably just the fact that the movie itself has such a mythological feel when you watch it and there's you, you know you're watching something that had never been made before and still like had you can't duplicate the magic that was cultivated um from james cameron and everyone involved but ultimately i think it's it's to just the cultural impact it had at the time at a, at a time before streaming and before um you know you had to go you either went to the movies to see it or you had to wait months before i mean movies back then it took a long time to come out on vhs titanic came out on vhs while it was still in theaters did it really oh cool but also because it was still in theaters because people were still buying tickets to go and see it in the theaters and that Mm -hmm. just doesn't happen and and i mean it's one of those movies where like everyone remembers people talking about it Uh, i mean i was eight years old when it came out and i remember i didn't see it in theaters my my parents wouldn't let me see it because of the one scene but uh I, I <laughs> but yeah, exactly. And, uh, but I remember everyone talking about it. I remember my parents talking about it. I remember, you know, people I don't even talk to anymore talking about it. And I think it's to a testament to nowadays, there's so much of that kind of the hype movie, you know, with all the Marvel stuff and the Star Wars stuff. And everything's trying to get the hype of Titanic or, or, you know, before that it was probably Jurassic Park or whatever, but not even, yeah. 
um, E.T. Well, all, yeah, yes, uh, and and before that, Ben Hur or Cleopatra. And it was years between each one. Like it wasn't. Now it's like three, four every year, and it's like you become kind of uh, desensitized to it. I think that's a very good point, and I think um, there's a for those of us who are movie buffs who are you know passionate about movies and telling stories with a moving picture i think it does it is a landmark as one of the last one of those films that you're talking about definitely uh of its kind of its epic you know epicness of its classicness it's a classic story you know the the tragedy itself and even james cameron i remember a conversation with francis fisher where she said he we were talking about it what happened what happened because we all went to a cast and crew screening it took two cinemas in in um century city to hold us all and then we all went back to um the 20th century uh lot into a big studio and had a bit of a party and nobody we were all amazed and impressed like oh my god we didn't know we were in that movie, you know, because we were all, again, we all did our little bits and then we all went home or we sat around for a bit more and then we did a bit more and then we all went home and everyone's saying it was going to sink. The movie was going to sink like the ship. Cash your check before it bounces. <laughs> all of this stuff. So our expectations were zero to low, below the water. And even he, I remember, you know, uh, saying to my friend, I want to have my can I have a photograph taken with with Jim. She's like, yeah, yes, yes, come on. So he's talking to some CGI guy because he's all techie head, and they've we just all watched the screening at the and we're at the party. And I was like, stay calm, Alexander, stay calm. Just say, well done, you, and have a photograph, and don't bother him. So he finishes his conversation and he goes, hello, hello, Alexander. He remembered everybody's name. He said, what did you? I said, oh my god, oh my god. It was so brilliant. And the bit when the when the triple screws and everything, when it's sick, I was like, he goes, you, look at you, look, look, you don't hold back, do you? I said, me hold back? You didn't hold back. They were telling you, stop spending the money. They were saying, cut this, do that. You just kept going, you kept going. And he just said, that's what you do. You actors, you just, all that passion and all that energy. And I was so, I was like, you just stupid cow right and then we took the photograph and I've got that little photograph of me and my little round glasses beaming from ear to ear because but still we didn't know it was going to make a billion that day we did not know it was going to make a billion dollars at the box office it was just a really fun experience to see the results and also see actors that we had spent time in the bar drinking margaritas we weren't in scenes with you oh there's Yoan's scene oh there's you know there's linda with her pint of beer it was just fun super fun super fun and then it just everything exploded and then it was it was something else and then you had to call and say are you gonna call me back are you gonna call me back in i i had a i had a commercial that i was shooting and i had to go back for that and they were gonna have use a stand-in and i was like no 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 not stand-in i want to be in i want to be in and, you know and it was juggling all sorts of things for two months and it uh, you can see the smile on my face now just recounting it it was just it was a real treat yeah yeah i can't even imagine that was a big question people were wondering too that you kind of covered you know when you were filming it did you have any idea I mean you, you like I said you basically already answered it no it was the opposite it, we just 
w thought it was way too extravagant and how could it possibly mean anything to anybody with this soap opera love story in the middle of it when there were all these real stories you could have been telling and why would you do why would you put fictional characters in a very real story and it worked like a dream and that's another thing that's filtered back to me is that he put that story in and he was he did you know he had the Strausses and he had the Astors and he had Ismay and he had you know Thomas Andrews and he had all those people and they all had stories and they all but every time they cut it kept coming back to Kate and Leo kept coming back to it and come like the the movie spoke to it you know it kept saying this Romeo and Juliet story is the thing that's going to carry you through all of the drama of the true story. It could not have been more real because there are young people, who, people like yourselves who were children when you first saw it, who would not have known the story of Titanic but for watching that movie. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter that those two characters are fictional because the situation was real. And then you go, right, now I have to find out more about this story and more about... That's why I, I keep coming back to this too, is as filmmakers, if we're going to tell a true story, there's a huge responsibility on us to tell the story correctly because that's often how people get their history now. Yeah. And they think right. it's and, true. And yeah, it's true. And Jack and Rose are like the surrogate to the historical event, for sure. They are the, yeah. they are the conduits. We follow them. Conduit, yeah. That we we are invested in them, so that allows the real story to be actually more vivid. I think around it, and it's a it's a stroke of genius. But I think even James Cameron would say he didn't know he was doing that at the time. He just he just put uh, two young actors in it. And there's all the sort of political, the social political comments about the third class passengers and versus the first class. You were rich and you were privileged and you got and you were female. <laughs> the one time women, women were first, you know, you got your life was going to be saved. And everybody else, all the men had to be, you know, terribly stoic and not. And the ones that did jump in lifeboats like Cal and Ismay and the, um, the Duff Gordons vilified for the rest of their lives for not going down with the ship and everybody else was just um collateral damage and and that yeah. i think still in today's political climate or you see that vast gap between wealthy people and people you know on food stamps in the richest country in the world that's another you know reason why i feel like the movie remains so relevant because there are so many themes that remain universal remain relevant it never goes out of style i guess but you know there's always something there for you when you watch titanic it's like uh when people talk about shakespeare why are we still why do we still go to shakespeare plays why do we still study it why do we still say you know quote lines from shakespeare like you quote lines from titanic it's because mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what century the story is set in it's a human story and it's about human tragedy human hubris it's about human it's about kings and queens and jesters and you know it's the the stories you can always find a meta connection to it and that's often why people tell you know directors and writers like yourself Ethan you know it's why you're drawn to tell a story why did you have to tell the story I don't know I just I'm how did you think that up I, it just came to me because I, I had this idea about a human experience and he James Cameron had an idea about a human experience on an epic scale. 
It, it can't be ignored. I meet people who have seen the movie and love it and want to talk about every detail just like you or people who have just never seen it. They like, they've resisted seeing it because they're not going to get caught up in it. But there's nobody who watches Titanic who doesn't have an opinion about it. <laughs> right, one way or the other, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And most For people, 99.9% sure. .9 of people just go, it's amazing. Every time it comes yeah. on the television, I sit down and I get scooped up in it again, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Every time it's on TV. It's definitely one of those movies. <laughs> you don't have to wait for it to come on TV because you watch it for fun. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, I could watch it whenever I want to. You know, I have it on like a bazillion different forms of media. But, you know, but it doesn't matter. Like if you're channel surfing and it comes on. Even if I don't sit down and watch the whole thing, I have to just put it on. I have to put it on for at least five minutes or something just to get that little fix because it's on TV and how can I not? Well, my, my yeah. editor has the same feeling about Jaws. He'll be, he'll be writing or editing or working on something and he'll just have it on his monitor, on his TV screen, sound down, sound off. He knows every time he looks up what's going on, you know, where they are in the in the in the movie. That's another obviously a much smaller scale, but that's another movie in movie history that sort of drew drew a line in the sand. Like movies weren't the same after Jaws. Movies weren't the mm. same after uh, after certain moments in in film history. And again, going back to what we were saying, you know, Titanic is is one of those. And there are movies that people can just literally have on in the background. And that's no disrespect to the filmmaker. In fact, it's a huge compliment because they know the film so well. That's interesting, though, the way in reference to movies like Jaws and stuff, the way you said movies weren't the same after that. There aren't really movies like Titanic being made after Titanic, you know? From a technical point, it was the CGI. And, you know, right, you look right, at those right, right, funny right. little sort of, you know, stick men now doing that on mm -hmm. the on the deck and some of the stuff when they're running with the water behind them. And it's so obviously their stunt doubles with their faces sort of super. Mm -hmm. That would be all mocap now. But, yeah, he, you know, yeah. And so when <clears throat> we look at it now and I keep going, I wonder if he wants to go back and just do that again. No, no, because it's of its time. We didn't have that then and to to take that away you know because it's not a perfect movie there are there are funny little clunky moments like that um, but you'd miss them if they were gone now right so much of the movie is so practical that that's what always stands out to me yeah there was cgi in that movie and that it did revolutionize stuff it did and and the, and the models and the you know the, the all of that you know all of that attention to detail of just the exterior of the ship or when it's when it's sinking and it breaks in half and and also for me to the sound this the sound mm. of that ship just heaving in two i just love filmmaking so much there's you have so many tools at your disposal to tell the story i think it opened up the range of what studios realized could make money I mean, it wouldn't have opened the door for Avatar, which, I mean, that broke tons of ground with, with mocap stuff, too. But um, that was, you know, James Cameron was like, yeah, hey, well, yeah, exactly. let like, me they do gave this. Him, yeah. Here's my <laughs> thing that I constantly talk about, too, is that it's a, Titanic's a very long film. And yeah. there's no break like there is in Gone with the Wind. There weren't two reels, you know. <laughs> and um, he's, I, I said this before I read James Cameron saying, he said, you know, we're going to make, six seven hour feature films in the future because they can be broken up 
into a series on a streamer and people's television, the lovely flat screen, high definition television screens, which you didn't have 25 years ago. If he had made Titanic today, all of my lines would have stayed in. All of the characters, all of those people that populated that ship would all have their moments over a six, seven, eight part series. Yeah, yeah. miniseries, right? Yeah. Yes, it would, uh, but we weren't doing that then. So, you know, even that has evolved over time. So, and he spent, what, like 13 years doing the, the next three avatars. <laughs> and we'll have, you know, avatar binging weekends. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll have Titanic 2 come out soon. Yes. Oh, there was can, you imagine, <laughs> can you imagine the executives at Paramount and Fox just going, how can we do Titanic 2? Yeah, two? oh, they probably sat in meetings for hours trying to figure it out <laughs> someone had brought up the idea of following rose's life from post titanic to 101 like all those things that she yes. did yes and i was like that's an idea i feel like if they were to ever do a titanic james cameron titanic sequel that's really the one thing that they could really do but. do you know what why they probably didn't and this is a woman in the film industry talking if jack had survived and it was a male lead going through his life or if they mm. had survived and got married it was there nobody was thinking of kate winslet leading a, a movie on her own right but today absolutely not it's but the it, complete opposite yeah they could do it now though for sure oh totally so if there's a Kate Winslet lookalike out there. <laughs> or slap that de-aging technology or the deep fake. Oh, yes, yes. And she's still so beautiful. She's, uh, you know, yeah. she's just lovely. I was going to ask you, Leonardo DiCaprio had done some stuff at that point, but Kate Winslet was like a relative newcomer. Like, was there a gravity about or like a buzz around them on set or was it mostly focused on Cameron? What was the gravity like on set with that? Leo was a... I mean, I love him now. I, the Revenant just transported me. Masterpiece of a film. Um, but you could not have seen that coming 25 years ago. He yeah. was he was a bit naughty. He was a bit naughty <laughs> and not, you know, not very focused, shall we say. And she was the absolute polar opposite with a script in a ring binder and notes, 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 notes. And you know, constant, intense conversations with James Cameron about this moment or that moment. I mean, I didn't witness those in particular, but, you know, I know from talking to fellow actors. So there was a huge gap between the two of them and their their methodology. There was no indication from him that he would reach the heights to which I think he's the most extraordinary actor. She was the most extraordinary actress to me. I couldn't take my eyes off her. She just had that thing you're talking about. It's like, even though she was, you know, work, she was so young and she was working so hard and sort of being pushed too hard, probably. But she mm. carried it all. And um, and she had done, she had just done Hamlet. She'd played Ophelia in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet and Jude the Obscure with um, uh, Christopher Eccleston, um, which I saw on one of my breaks. And I had to sort of seek her out in the in the in the dressing room building going, Kate, Kate, I just saw Jude. Oh my God, it was so... She said, was it really, was it really? She said, when, I, when the little children die, it was very, very upsetting to play that. And I was like, no, it was 
I mean, it just was amazing. And, you know, people, uh, Kenneth Branagh interviewed her when she was very young, auditioned her for Frankenstein, the Bride of Frankenstein that Helena Bonham Carter eventually, and he said it was like meeting a 30-year-old person. She was so together and so poised and so just like this old soul in a very young person and she was too young to play that part but then he cast her as Ophelia which of course was a perfect age probably and then James Cameron must have seen they must have considered many many A-list actresses and of course we know they did but it was her and her life was never the same afterwards either I think Leo would have been fine whatever but it's it's different for it's different for girls Hmm. And it is pretty amazing when you think about that, you know, one of the biggest blockbusters and just movies of all time, you know, it was about a woman. It really is Rose's story. And I don't think a lot of people realize that, you know, Kate is the star of the movie, like as much as there is talk about Leo and Jack and about the floating wood debate and all this stuff and people so upset over Jack dying and everything, (laughs) you know, it really is at the heart of it. it. We go through the whole thing with Rose, you know, and I think that's something a lot of people don't really think about or notice about Titanic is that. Yes, it's about, you know, her triumph over adversity and her her guts. that She had them all, all the while and they're being mm-hmm. suppressed. And then when the ship starts to sink, that's her chance to literally break free. Mm-hmm. And the corset is that as a huge metaphor for that, you know, when the mother's strapping her into the corset, she's she's you know trapping her in a in a cage in a corset and when that ship goes down all bets are off and there, there's i think there's a lot of young people especially who go oh god all i have to do is show a bit of gumption some things might start going my way <laughs> even though i lose the love of my life that i've only known for 48 <laughs> hours <laughs> yeah i think somebody on instagram asked about the, what was the most challenging part Yes. my part and I can t- say hands down the bloody corset that's what mm. reminds because we had to wear them for like 18 hours and you couldn't sit down you had to sort of angle yourself if you wanted to have a nap because it was like being in a you know on a board clap two boards collapsed side of it so that mm. was and again I mean an Edwardian lady she would have been very used to it and used but it was it was a f- physical feat wearing that all day and actually, I don't think um, many women did wear them for 18 hours a day, which we did sometimes. <laughs> Ridiculous. Someone also mentioned about the etiquette training. Did you? Yes, Lynn Hockney. She was also the choreographer in the third class dance sequence. But she would be around and she'd be like, you know, everyone knows the star eating. I don't know why that's a thing anymore. Start eating. When there's lots and lots of cutlery, start on the outside and work your way in. Or just watch what everyone else is doing if you're not sure. So they always like to put that bit in. But there were other things like... Um, hand you know kissing the the back of your hand and a gentleman because men don't do any of these things anymore either and uh, and I had this little purse that I put on my lap when I sat down but every time I just tipped forward in my corset it would slide off the satin silk and onto the floor so Bernard Hill had to keep picking it I'm like I'm really sorry I said I said to Lynn can I is there any way I can put my little purse on the table she was like oh no 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 so they were like little little you know and I would have known that I wouldn't known I'd have known I can't just put my handbag on the on the side it was it was smaller than a handbag it was quite you know it would have fit 
but you just didn't do that you know so yes we definitely we definitely had um coaching in that respect and you know the food they brought out was food that was actually on the menu on the, really? that little menu holder yeah it was a bit dusty, I remember, because it had been sitting out in the props area. But oh. <laughs> we ate it anyway. It was fine. <laughs> have you been to the uh, any of the museums, like the one in uh, Pigeon Forge or anything? I have been to Pigeon Forge. That's an awesome museum. Yes, it's a very surreal experience yeah. for me. Like the, the 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 you know they were like, look, it's the staircase, it's the staircase. <laughs> I was like, yes, I know, I know. And they're, and they're very passionate about about their yeah. museum too. So it's uh, it's really oh. The ripple effect, literally the ripple effect of that. Yeah, and they, they're very embracing of the movie, obviously. Like, they incorporate certain uh, elements of it into the museum as well, which is really cool. Because you can't separate, you cannot separate the movie yeah. from the history, uh, from, you know, you, you just cannot anymore. Yeah. You can buy a Heart of the Ocean necklace in the gift shop of most yeah. of these <laughs> <You can>. uh, <laughs> museums. Yeah. You've shared a lot of moments, but I don't know if there was, like, maybe a particularly, like, super memorable moment being directed by james cameron is pretty is pretty a pretty nice memory to have and and that he was so appreciative he remembered my audition and he was so appreciative of the work i had done it was you know he didn't make it a it wasn't a foregone conclusion that every actor there had read all the books and done i just did it because it, it was a lovely way to spend a weekend but he remembered that and and so they're sort of like little actory things as much as anything else. There was also a moment when um, at the end of the day, you know, in the first class dining room, I'm sat next to the captain. I've had my little chat with Peter Lamont and um, they're going to move on to the big dining room table scene. And um, and it's going to be a wrap. It's going to be a wrap. And everyone's like, oh, thank God I can take this bloody corset off. James Cameron takes the mic the the PA mic and he goes one more thing and everyone, you can just feel the whole room go oh no what's he gonna say what's he gonna say he says and he points to one of the extras he said it's this young lady's birthday today so we're all gonna <laughs> sing happy birthday <laughs> so everybody sang happy birthday I think her name was Alexandra as well so we all sang happy birthday he said right now that's a wrap you can all go home <laughs> you know just fun stuff that's awesome. So someone did wonder, uh, have there been any cast and crew reunions over the years? Or did you guys just stay in touch with a few people? And I have made very good friends with many people. Rochelle is one. Um, Peter White is another. He was completely cut. He was the... Uh, I My lines were cut. He was completely cut. He's the wireless operator on The Californian, uh, third Officer Groves of The Californian. He had two lines that he waited six months to say. So he was like with us in our group. And he said, people just did, people thought, you know, me and Adam were just sort of loitering around and being scooped, just coming to set, you know, because nobody ever, after a while, he said, I think people just didn't believe we were, we were members of the cast. And then one day we did get into costumes. So finally, oh, all right, all right, you're in it now, all right. Um, and then, of course, he goes and he's completely, he, so I'm very good friends with Peter and his wife, Victoria, and they, they're in London and um, uh, yeah you know Linda Kearns the third class she was third class woman I was first class woman and Liam Toohey who's the baker um, Mark Capri who is the guy who gets his nose 
bloodied by Kate in the corridor. Um, you just, you know, Facebook is a wonderful way to stay in touch with people. And, um, and certainly for the 10 years that I was in Los Angeles and a lot of us were still there, we just became part of each other's social circles. And that doesn't happen on a lot of most jobs. And then other friends of friends have come into that circle because of that time in 96, 97. And they all know that we were all the 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 B and C list Titanicers, you know. So yes, I am I am in contact with a lot of people, um, which doesn't doesn't happen ever really. What about the one guy, Brittany? Who's that one guy? He plays Chef Pierre. Who, what scene was he? He was in like oh, at the end. Oh, he yeah, he's. Um, That's probably on, a on our other unit. podcast that we talk about that TV show. There was a crossover moment where one of the actors in Titanic was in an episode of that TV show. And he's the steward on the Carpathia who comes up to Rose at the end and says, can I take your name, please, love? Oh, you mean Greg Ellis? Yes, actually, he was my neighbor in Los Angeles for about two years. We owned a house. He goes, there's a house for sale on my street. You should come and look at it. And I looked at it and I bought it and we were neighbors for about two or three years. Small world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Yes. All interconnected. Yeah. I feel like that's pretty much everything I had on here. You basically have told us it's been, it, you know, it was a really great experience, so I'm assuming I know the answer to this question. Uh, but someone had just asked if you would do it all again. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I wouldn't fit into my costume anymore, but I would love to do it again. I think it would be, you know, if you were able to be transported back in a time machine, just to sort of walk around the set again, I think. Of course. Yes, of course. But the reality is, as I said, none of us, none of us probably will will ever experience anything like it again. Uh, another friend um, that I'm still in contact with is Rebecca Klingler. We used to call her Rebecca Mother at Stern. She has a little boy. She goes, it'll all be over soon. And, you know, we have conversations about that. Like, we kind of knew at the time. We knew at the time we were... We were, we, were, we were part of something special, and we were. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, on that note, that's kind of like a very nice note to end on. Thank you so much for yeah. coming on the podcast. It's been amazing. Never thought that we'd be interviewing a cast member and someone so, you know, involved in the movie on this podcast, you know, because it is Titanic. You don't think these things will happen. But wow, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. You are the absolute coolest, nicest, sweetest person. It's been so nice. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to some of those people. Maybe they'll come on and be guests of yours as well. I'm sure they'd they'd love to do that. Just a... Shh. That'd be awesome. Let me see if I can pull a few strings. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I mean, this was just so great. This is one of those things where when I think back to myself as a child, you could never tell my five-year-old self. Well, now you have to because... We're all here and we are all connected and that's not to get too deep about it. You know, that's, it's the beauty of it. But I I have to say, I have enjoyed every single person that I have met because, singularly because I have that tiny part in Titanic. It's it's done nothing but enrich my life. That's amazing. 
But yeah, so I I guess that'll do it for this little sit down behind the scenes by scene <laughs> uh, conversation with you. Alexandra Boyd, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. So that'll just about do it for our wonderful sit-down conversation with Alexandra Boyd. Thank you all so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Please be sure to follow us on all of the socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Feel free to leave us a voice message via Anchor. The link should be in the description of this podcast episode. Shoot us an email, titanicscenebyscene at gmail.com. It's always wonderful to hear from you guys. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you in the next episode.